You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Aha, there we go. All right, well, good evening. Uh, Good to be back with you guys. Uh, For those who may not know me, my name is Kevin Hay. Um, I do have to admit, though, whenever Dave asked me to uh, come back and preach for you guys, I was a little bit uh, hesitant when he asked. For those who were here last time, uh, you know that the electricity was out. And uh, so that thing made things a little bit interesting for us, but we got through it. Uh, and so uh, the reason I was hesitant, I guess, is because my first thought was, well, um, you know, maybe Dave has a plan to make this happen again. Okay, that was, that was a little bit there. Maybe that's kind of his plan. And I get here, I'm thinking, no, it's going to be fine, you know, no big deal. And then I don't see Dave, and the air's not working, right? So I knew then that something was up, but... Uh, I think we've, we've, we're back on track now, so hopefully it'll start to cool down a little bit. Um, and in all seriousness, it's good to be here. Very thankful for the opportunity to come and uh, preach for you guys and uh, just to dig in God's Word together. Uh, thankful for electricity, which we did not have the last time. And uh, so, so with that in mind, I am going to invite and encourage you to open your Bibles uh, with me this evening to the book of John, the Gospel according to John and we're going to dig into chapter 6. And over the past several months at Grace, uh, where I am one of the pastors, uh, we've been working our way through John's gospel verse by verse, uh, much like you guys are doing with 1 John. Uh, you guys are obviously working uh, through that, that letter to Asia Minor, and so you're uh, becoming more familiar with the way John writes. And so as I thought about all of those things, and Dave asked me to preach. This is the direction I decided that I would go dig into a certain text in John's gospel that really uh, I felt uh, was, was just really impactful, and so I just thought I'd share that with you guys uh, tonight. And so we're going to pick back up in kind of the latter part of John chapter 6, um, and just so we understand, I was explaining this to Dave earlier, just talking about the fact that when you're going through a verse-by-verse exposition with your congregation, you've all been there together for the most part, and so you're able to kind of look back, right, and appeal to a text that you've already worked through and say, remember when John said this? Well, I don't really have that whenever I've not been doing that with you all. And so uh, just to give us a little bit of of context here, uh, John 6 begins with Jesus uh, miraculously feeding this multitude of people. They've been following after Jesus. Uh, they're hungry. They're tired. The disciples say, hey, let's get rid of them. Send them home. Jesus says, no, you feed them. And they say, well, how are we going to feed them? We don't, we don't have anything. And so they look around. They find a couple pieces of fish, some bread. Jesus multiplies the bread and fish, and he feeds. Uh, the text says 5,000, but uh, commentators and scholars tell us that was probably closer to like 15, 20,000 whenever you factor in the women and the children. And so you're talking about a couple pieces of fish, a couple pieces of bread, feeding 15 to 20,000 people likely. And so he performs this amazing miracle. He feeds everybody. They're satisfied, physically nourished in that way. And after that, they decide they would like to keep that happening, right? And so they say, we're going to make him our king. And they decide they're going to try to take him by force, make him be their king. Uh, Jesus, of course, wants no part of that. And so he leaves, heads off across the Sea of Galilee, not by boat, mind you, but on foot, right? Walks across the Sea of Galilee, stops off to help the disciples, walk on water, 
Peter has a demonstration there where he proclaims that Christ is truly the Son of God. Great moment in Scripture. He gets then to a place called Capernaum, teaching in the synagogue. And then some of these same people who were fed, they come chasing after him. And they find him in Capernaum, teaching in the synagogue right around the Sabbath. Okay, and so that's kind of the context. And so all the way from verse 22 of John 6 towards the end of the chapter, there is this intense conversation that unfolds as these people who were there, part of that group, they bust into the synagogue and they start asking Jesus questions uh, immediately. And so it's with that in mind that we're going to begin reading tonight at verse 60. So John chapter 6, beginning in verse 60, and God's word reads, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So with that, let's uh, start by going to the Lord in prayer. Father, our purpose in coming into this place tonight is to gather together as your people and to worship you in spirit and in truth. As we open your word this evening, uh, I pray, Father, for uh, the illumination of your word to your people. I pray that by the power of your spirit, you will be exalted in this place, that you will open up the eyes and ears and the hearts of your people to, to see and to understand and to receive the message that you are proclaiming in their hearing. I pray, Father, that you would hide me behind your word, uh, that it wouldn't be me that they hear, but it would be your word and your truth. I pray that you you bless our time together in your word, that you would uh, give it clarity and and, and power. Help me, Father, to to proclaim it with confidence and boldness, uh, certainly not in my own ability, but in the authority of your word. And so we pray your blessing tonight upon your word and upon the the growth and sanctification of your people by your truth. And we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, uh, as I said earlier, this sixth chapter of John's Gospel really contains this intense conversation starting all the way back at verse 22. And we're not going to read through that, but I encourage you to do that on your own uh, at some point. But when you study that interaction between Jesus and this crowd who, again, followed him from all the way on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, it's easy to see that the confrontation that happens really boils down to uh, the truth of Jesus' word confronting the demonstration of their obvious unbelief as it manifests itself in a variety of ways. And so, for example, we see in the, the text before this, Jesus confront in a very intentional way their motives Uh, He points them to the reality that they're following after him for the wrong reasons. He's not the type of rescuer um, that they're looking for. 
Uh, we find them arrogantly and disrespectfully challenging Jesus' claim to be the Messiah of God, the anointed one whom God the Father sent according to his predetermined plan. We find them demanding that he, he prove who he says he is with more miracles, though he himself is a walking miracle and has done many miracles in their midst, including the feeding uh, of the multitude. They grumble and they complain at the words which Jesus speaks. They argue amongst themselves and question the validity of Christ's mission. But with all of those examples in mind, among the, the blatantly unbelieving crowd, in other words, those who are obviously unbelievers, they're not truly followers of Christ, what we find in this particular text is somewhat of a twist. And what we're going to discover is that it's not just those who are obvious in their unbelief, who can be guilty of grumbling and ultimately rejecting the words of Jesus in the grand scheme of things, but instead that sometimes even those who have considered themselves to be genuine believers can prove to actually be false. And in the midst of that discovery of the the previously hidden unbelief, we're going to also find Jesus once again pointing them all to the sovereignty of God and salvation, as we've, we've talked about this evening, and not just the aspect of, of salvation from Christ's own perspective, but from the perspective of each person in the Godhead or the Trinity, which is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we find all of that wrapped up in, in the text. And so with that in mind, what we're looking at this evening is salvation and the sovereignty of the triune God. Okay? Salvation and the sovereignty of the triune God. And it's from the very first verse of the passage that we find this really shocking response from some of, again, Jesus' own disciples. And so as we begin in verse 60, once again, if you look there with me, we're going to find that even many disciples refuse to accept the words of Jesus. And so flowing from the passage just before this one, we read from verse 60, which says, Then many, or when many, of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And so again, this question we find here in verse 60 is not coming from the mouths of the crowd who have been going back and forth with Jesus throughout this chapter. It's not coming from those who have been challenging Jesus with their skepticism. This is a statement followed by a rhetorical question of unbelief being asked by those who are sitting in the synagogue listening to Jesus' teaching before the blatantly unbelieving crowd ever showed up and burst on the scene. Okay? These were the people, if you were to be walking in the first century and you see Jesus, you would see them walking with him everywhere he went. They hung out with Jesus in every way. They were living with Jesus. And as our text refers to them, this is coming from disciples. That's what we would have known people like that to be. And so when we think about that term, uh, it's important for us to make sure we understand what that word does mean and what that word does not mean. And so in terms of what it doesn't mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that these people we're talking about with the term disciples were truly followers of Christ, or that they were trusting in him for their salvation. But what it does mean is that these were people who had devoted themselves to Jesus visibly or outwardly in a more dedicated way than the, than the unbelieving crowd who followed after Jesus because they wanted to make him their king for superficial, selfish reasons. A disciple was someone who attached themselves to Jesus 
uh, in some tangible way, and even to certain parts of the message that he taught, right? They would have considered him to be their teacher, to be their rabbi. And so this was a group of people who were, were outside of the original 12, but yet were still considered to be his disciples by all appearances nonetheless. But as this group, these disciples, hear Jesus expound upon the truths of the gospel, they don't respond with what we would expect them to, which would be an amen, right? They don't do that for him. In fact, they don't respond to Jesus with any form of of affirmative or affirmation whatsoever. But instead, they declare that the message that Jesus is proclaiming is too hard or too difficult for them to listen to. And it's not that they were confused by the words that Jesus spoke. It wasn't because they didn't understand it. But on the contrary, as we're going to see, it was precisely because they did understand it that they responded to it with rejection. As one commentator put it, it finally dawned on them that following Jesus meant far more than merely hanging around him, hoping to see and experience the physical benefits of his power. And the rhetorical question, which is a question that you ask when you really don't expect a response, it drives home the level of their rejection and refusal to accept the truth that Jesus has declared. Who can listen to it? Who can hear what this man is saying and really believe it? In other words, according to their fallen and previously hidden, unbelieving, rebellious hearts, they had concluded that there was no one in their right mind who could possibly take the words that Jesus was speaking seriously. And therefore, for them, the charade was over. These so-called disciples had reached a point where their spiritually dead and darkened hearts could no longer continue walking and following after this man whom they had considered for quite some time to be their teacher and, and their rabbi. And in doing so, they demonstrated that they were false disciples. They were like the description provided rightly by one commentator who said, False disciples do not follow Christ because of who he is, but because of what they want from him. They have no problem viewing him as a baby in the manger at Christmas, a social reformer with a broad message of love and tolerance, the ideal human everyone should emulate, or a source of health, wealth, and worldly happiness. But they are unwilling to embrace the biblical Jesus, the God-man who fearlessly rebuked sinners and warned them of eternal hell, and that salvation from that hell comes only through believing his words, end quote. And so to put it a different way, these people had failed the test of discipleship, right? Jesus declares in the book of Luke chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And so in a word... The test of true discipleship, we can say, is perseverance, okay? Perseverance. As Jesus put it in Matthew 24, 13, it's the one who endures to the end who will be saved. 
And so it's not enough to say, well, I was, I was baptized when I was such and such age. Or I know I'm saved because I had this experience with God back whenever. I, I pray and I talk to God every single day. I've been going to church now for, for how many ever years? It's not even whether you've ever professed faith in Christ before. But instead, it's about whether you're trusting in Christ today and following after him with every aspect and fiber of your being? Are you living in obedience, striving to live in obedience to what the lordship of Jesus Christ demands upon your life? Or instead, are you living in blatant rebellion and unrepentant sin, refusing to accept the very words which Jesus has clearly spoken? As he'll later say in chapter 8 of this very gospel account, if you continue in my word, then you are true disciples of mine. And it's important to note that that's not to say that salvation is about what you do, right? Salvation doesn't come through your efforts and and what you are are striving for. As we'll see later in our text, the, the perseverance of God's people is not disconnected from the grace of God and his sovereignty in salvation, it simply means that true faith doesn't quit. It doesn't, it doesn't stop going. It doesn't stop moving. It doesn't give up. It doesn't take the path of least resistance, the path of disobedience, and just continue walking in that way. Though it will certainly be tested and will no doubt be imperfect in this life, true faith, the Bible tells us, perseveres, which means that it believes in the midst of struggle. It strives to resist temptation, and if and when it falls, it gets back up by the grace of God, repents, and trusts the words and promises of Jesus Christ. And so the question we have to ask ourselves as we think through this text and we see the reality that people who were known as disciples actually and truly, as you see in verse 66 later, fell away and stopped following after Christ, the question we have to ask ourselves is, What are they rejecting about what Christ has declared? What part of what Jesus has said did they refuse to accept? Was it the concept of Him coming down from heaven as the divine Son of God taking on the form of man? Was it the the figurative language that He used about eating His flesh and drinking His blood that we find in the text before this passage? Was it that He offended their, their high esteem for Moses and, and the nostalgia that they had cherished their entire lives about the manna from heaven because Jesus compared himself to that, showing that he is indeed the true bread of life. Well, as we make our way through the text with the rest of our, our time this evening, we're going to discover exactly what it was that unmasked their unbelief. But before the specific object of their rejection is revealed, we're going to see first that Jesus confronts the unbelieving attitudes of these disciples. And so if look with me again at verse 61. It says there, But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? And so this is an example of Jesus' omniscience, right? His divine knowledge in the form of man. As, as fully God in human flesh, Jesus 
as you see at the end of chapter 2 in John's Gospel, he could perceive the heart and know the thoughts of every human being. And here, as the murmuring sound of the false disciples uttered the words of unbelief, found in verse 60, Jesus knew that those words were essentially a a collective demonstration and and a verbal reflection of the grumbling, complaining spirit which existed in and permeated through the hearts of many who were there that day and who had been following after him all of this time as his so-called disciples. And so it's with that divine knowledge in hand that Jesus confronts these false disciples and their rhetorical question, who can hear it, who can follow it, who can believe this? And he answers with a rhetorical question of his own. Do you take offense at this? Does what I've just declared cause you to stumble? And to to better help us understand this, the verb offense here means to fall into a trap or to stumble over a large object like a rock. Okay, it's like what happens when I try to walk through my living room at night and I trip over one of my five kids' toys, right? So it's like that. You're, you're tripping over something that's along your path. It's causing you to stumble. And it's actually where we get our English word scandal. Okay? Very important point to point, point out there. And the original idea comes from the 19th chapter in the book of Leviticus where God spoke through Moses saying to the children of Israel. Just think about this. This is the original idea. You shall not curse the deaf. They can't hear you. Or put a stumbling block... Before the blind, because they can't see it. But you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. And in the New Testament, that same idea is used to refer to the truth of the gospel message. It's spoken of in in metaphoric language to be like a stumbling block to the Jewish people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty three, But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block, same word, to Jews. In other words, Paul's saying, we declare a message which explains that the Messiah of God has been crucified upon a cross as a sacrifice. And that reality is like a large rock which causes the spiritually blind Jews to trip and fall over it. It's like a trap which causes them to persist in sin and unbelief because a dead Messiah doesn't fit into their conception of who and what the Messiah of God was supposed to be. And therefore, the gospel message itself, for this very reason, by definition, is a scandal. That's exactly what Jesus is asking them in verse 61. Is this message that I am declaring in your hearing too scandalous for you to accept? Does it trip you up and ultimately cause you to reject me because of it? And that rhetorical question which Jesus already clearly knew the answer to is what leads us to the hypothetical question he asks next to drive home his point. And so with that in mind, next we're going to see that Jesus points to the reality of his ascension. And we're going to find out why he does that. Look with me at verse 62. He says there, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And so the first thing I want us to notice here is that this question helps us to understand what it was that these counterfeit disciples were actually rejecting. 
As Paul says in Ephesians 4, 9 and 10, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And so what is it that lies at the center of Christ's incarnation or his descension to the earth from heaven and his ascension back into heaven? It's the cross, right? Where the Lamb of God who's been sent from heaven to earth in order to take the sins of God's people upon himself and receives the fullness of God's wrath in their place. As he said back in verse 51 of this same chapter, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so the scandal of Jesus' words for these false disciples, just as I quoted earlier from 1 Corinthians, was the cross which obviously is the centrality of the gospel message. And what we come to discover is that the thought of a dying Messiah not only caused those Jews who were blatant unbelievers to grumble and scoff at his words, but it also became the source of unveiling for those Jews who seemed to be his disciples, but in reality were simply following after him for the wrong reasons. They, like the others, were looking for a Messiah who would be a, a physical king for Israel, who would reign mightily upon the throne of David, overthrow the Roman occupation, and lead the nation of Israel to restoration, power, and glory, and to a place of worldwide preeminence that it once held under King David himself. But the reality is that Jesus had come to earth not as a political savior, but as a sacrifice for salvation. He came to reign through his death. As A.W. Tozer once said, salvation was bought not by Jesus' fist, but by his nail-pierced hands. Not by muscle, but by love. Not by vengeance, but by forgiveness. Not by force, but by sacrifice. And therefore, Jesus' point in this question is to say, if you can't accept my words about the sacrifice of my flesh as the promised Messiah, who is simultaneously the perfect Lamb of God, then you will never be able to grasp and accept the truth concerning my ascension, which will be when I leave the earth and my true followers and go back to heaven to the place of glory from which I came. In other words, stop basing your faith upon your fallen understanding and preconceived ideas of what you think the Messiah is supposed to be. Stop following after me with your own self-centered motivation. Stop creating expectations for what you think I should be. Instead, listen to the words I am speaking to you. Allow them to inform your understanding And then base your faith and your trust and your confidence upon them, upon me. And it's that idea of the nature of Jesus' words which leads us to the next two verses of our text. And so there we're going to see that Jesus explains that human ability is worthless. Human ability is worthless. Look with me, beginning at verse 63. He says there, It is the Spirit... Who gives life? The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. 
And so what Jesus is doing here is similar to what he did back in chapter 3. If you know anything about the conversation that he had with the Pharisee Nicodemus. He's contrasting the life and ability that comes from the flesh, which always results in flesh, and the life and ability that comes from the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's just pointed them to his ascension in order to tell them that they need to believe that he is who he says he is, and not what their fallen presuppositions expect him to be. And so that's their responsibility as human beings. But the pillar of truth which stands beside that expectation and responsibility is the reality that human effort and ability and human understanding profits nothing when it comes to salvation. The Bible says that humanity is spiritually dead naturally in trespasses and sins. And therefore, human beings on their own, apart from the gracious work of the Spirit, regenerating them and causing them to be born again, do not have the natural ability to believe the words of Christ for salvation. As John said back in chapter 1 in his prologue, the children of God are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And yet, at the same time, as Jesus goes on to say, the very words that he has spoken are both spirit and life. In other words, eternal life is given according to the sovereignty of God's Holy Spirit. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes. That is absolutely and unequivocally true. But, at the same time, the life-giving Spirit of God is not disconnected from the message of the gospel because the Spirit brings forth life through the words of Christ. And I appreciate it so much, the words of one commentator on this point. I was in a conversation just a few weeks ago with some people who were committing this very error that we're looking at in their thinking, which has huge implications for how we handle the Word of God. And so this commentator said, It is a great error to drive a wedge between the Spirit and the words of Jesus, or to expect God's Spirit to work apart from Jesus' words. The eternal life that Jesus offers can come no other way than by His Spirit and through His Word. And so just as Paul declares in Romans ten seventeen, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the words of Christ. And so the picture Scripture provides for us is like we, what we see in Ezekiel 37. And I was so glad to see uh, a passage from Ezekiel already this morning. This is uh, the vision of the valley of dry bones, one of my favorites. And it starts in verse 1 of that chapter. And there Ezekiel explains... He says, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones and he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord God, you know. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. 
So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And so like the dry and lifeless bones in that valley, which were exceedingly dry, Humanity is spiritually dead by their very nature. But through the words of Christ, which is the message of the gospel, the message of salvation, the Holy Spirit brings forth life to humanity's deadness and we live. And as Jesus goes on to tell them, in spite of the hope that is found in the words that he is speaking, But there are some of you, he says, who do not do this. You do not believe. Parenthetical statement, parentheses. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those who were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And so although Jesus, of course, was not surprised by those who failed to believe his words, the emphasis of their unbelief was still placed, keep in mind, upon their responsibility and their rejection. And how much greater responsibility there was upon those who were walking with Jesus as his disciples. They heard the words of salvation day in and day out, spoken directly from the lips of the Word made flesh. And today, for us, bringing that context into the 21st century, how much greater responsibility is there for those who consider themselves to be Christians, who have heard the message of the gospel proclaimed time and time again, yet still ultimately reject the Jesus of the Bible, even if it's inwardly, and instead believe upon a figment of a Jesus that they have created in their own minds. And therefore, the fundamental problem, once again, is not a lack of understanding. The fundamental issue is a rejection of the truth of God. It's a refusal to accept the words of Christ and to live. As crazy as it sounds, it's like Jesus commanding with a loud voice for the deceased Lazarus to come forth. And Lazarus yells back from the tomb, no. That's crazy. doesn't make sense. And the gospel message is intentionally simplistic, right? This is why it was foolishness to to those who consider themselves to be wise. And therefore, those who reject it cannot claim that they were confused. The weight of their unbelief falls upon their refusal to believe. And yet, as we look at our final verse for this morning, this evening, right? Jesus explains why it's not a surprise that so many, even among his disciples, persist in that type of unbelief. So look at verse 65 with me. We're going to see there that Jesus reaffirms humanity's absolute dependence. So he says there, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. 
And so once again, just as you can see, if you read through this entire conversation, which begins at verse 22, Jesus in his divine wisdom beautifully weaves together the truths of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And he does so here after focusing on their responsibility to believe by repeating what he said back in verse 37 and 44, which is that those who come to the Son must be divinely given to him by the Father. 